Amen. There's nothing like the name of Christ. If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope and pray that you do. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 7. And while you're turning there, um, I just want to make a brief comment. Uh, Every election cycle, uh, inevitably, uh, some will contact me and say, Pastor, how do we vote? What is your suggestion? What should we do? And here's my answer, all right? As Christians, I think we have a responsibility to vote. If you haven't voted early, I hope and pray that you vote at some point. Um, And here's my recommendation on how you should vote, all right? We vote for the candidate whose values and ideology and philosophies and voting record, if there is one, most closely agrees with Scripture. That's how Christians are to vote. Uh, and so do your research, think through that, pray through that. If you need any help with resources, I'll be happy to point you in that direction privately. But that's my thoughts on the election. And just as a reminder, as Christians, our hope is not in a political candidate, it's not in an election, and it's not in the government. So don't lose sight of the big picture, all right? And so be sure to vote, exercise that right. Uh, millions, billions of people around the world don't have that opportunity. And so make sure you take advantage of that uh, right that we have as citizens of the great United States. Genesis chapter 7. There would be some who would strongly encourage me not to speak on the primary subject of today's text because it's hard, it's difficult, it, it, it's, it's not palatable to our current culture and events and whatnot, but it is in Scripture. Genesis 7 paints for us a picture of God's judgment against the sin and rebellion of man. In chapter 6, we looked at and discussed how our sin and our in, in rebellion invites God's judgment into our story. Um, Remember, I, don't, I hope you understand this, a holy and righteous God hates and despises sin. He hated and he despised sin in Genesis, and he hates and he despises sin today. Uh, the, the judgment of God against the wickedness and the sin and rebellion of man is often referred to in Scripture as God's wrath. And most of the world would say, you can't preach on God's wrath. Um, You you need to preach on God's love and God's grace and God's kindness and God's goodness and God's mercy. And I agree with that, but here's the reality. We'll never understand those things like we ought to understand them if we don't also understand God's judgment and God's wrath against our sin. Those things we won't fully comprehend and appreciate those other things. Genesis 7 is a picture of God's wrath. Look with me there in your notes. If you're following along, if you're taking notes with me, I've given you a a simple definition of God's wrath, and it is this. God's righteous anger towards sinful disobedience. God's righteous anger towards sinful disobedience. The Bible has a lot to say about anger, If you've read through Scripture, and there's a great deal of admonition to us not to be angry people, not to be bitter people, not to let the sun go down on your anger, and all of that certainly is true, but there also is a place for righteous anger, and we see it uh, in 
in the character and the nature of God, uh, particularly in this text and other passages of Scripture. So God's righteous anger towards sinful disobedience. And we see this truth in Genesis, and we're going to look at several other passages, but let me just, just remind you of some where we see it. In, in Genesis 6, beginning in verse 5, here's what we read. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, here it is, here's his wrath against our wickedness, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. In Genesis 6 verse 13, we read this, then God said to Noah, I've decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. Chapter 6, verse 17, again, he says, understand that I am bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. Then we get down into chapter 7, and we see even again, he continues this emphasis. Verse 4, seven days from now I'll make it rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing I've made I will wipe off the face of the earth. And in verses 21 and 23, we just see uh, his record of where every living thing perished, everything on dry land as a result of God's judgment against our sin. Well, this isn't the only place where we see God's wrath and God's judgment against our sin. Look with me uh, in this passage of Scripture on the screen in front of you from Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Look what we read. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You and I could say it this way. For God's Righteous indignation is revealed from heaven against all sin and ungodliness. Look with me at Romans 2 and verse 5. We see it again. Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And then we come to the book of Revelation. By the way, Revelation chapter 5 through chapter 20, that, that, that's 16 chapters <laughs> of God's wrath. That, that's what the book of Revelation is primarily. Look with me at chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. When the sixth seal is open, listen to this language. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and every free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So think about this. Every person from every socioeconomic and every uh, ethnic um, tradition will plead with the, that the mountains would fall on them so that they might escape God's wrath. And then in Revelation chapter 19 that records for us the second coming of Christ, here's what we read beginning in verse 15. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. 
He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so God's righteous anger toward the sinful disobedience and wickedness of man. Listen, it is, it is very real. And it's a reality we see in Genesis chapter 7 with the flood. But we also see, we also see the in unbelievable and amazing grace and mercy and kindness and compassion of God in Genesis chapter 7. And so we see both of these wonderful truths right there in front of us in bold letters. Uh, before we kind of get into the, the depth of this chapter, there are a few things, I just some interesting facts, or at least I found them interesting, I just want to share with you. Verses 6 and 11 tell us that Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. Uh, this was in the 1,656th year of creation. If, if we go back and look at Genesis 5, we follow the timeline. So creation's been around for 1,600 years. Uh, and God decides to bring us the flood. In verses 9 and 15, we see that the animals came to Noah. Isn't it quite interesting? Noah didn't have to go find all of these animals and bring them with him. God brought the animals to Noah. That, that's a supernatural work of God, pretty phenomenal there. In verses uh, 11, 12, 19, and 20, here's what we understand. Uh, the vast number of aquifers that exist beneath the earth's surface burst open. The floodgates of the sky were open, and so the water rose from the ground and the rain fell, all of this over a course of 40 days and 40 nights. In verse 20, it tells us the high mountains of the earth were covered by a minimum of, of 20 feet of water. Uh, that's fascinating. Now, um, Christian geologists and, and, and others and as well as non-Christians, there's not a, not a certainty as to what the topography of the earth looked like prior to the flood, meaning was Mount Everest 28,000 feet high before the flood, or did it rise as a result of the flood? Uh, some believe the earth was just a little more of rolling hills, but whatever the case, whatever the highest elevation was, okay, maybe it was Brasstown Ball, maybe that was the highest elevation on all of earth, I, we don't know. But whatever it was, the highest point on earth was, was 20 feet underwater. Now, I'm not a scientist, but, but I can tell you this, that the amount of pressure that the water would have placed on earth would have changed the entire topography of the world. And that's how we explain the Grand Canyon. That's how we explain these jagged rock formations called the Himalayas and the Andes and the Rockies and others. The flood did all of this, just like water still today carves its way where it wants to go, okay? Verses 21 and 22 tell us that every living thing on the face of the earth died, perished in the flood. Verse 24 tells us that the flood waters lasted for 150 days for five months. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Five months. There was no dry land anywhere. Pretty phenomenal. So let's jump into chapter 7. We're not going to read every verse in its entirety, but I do want to point out several things here. In verse 1, we see that God invites Noah to be rescued. Look what he says there. Enter 
the ark, you and all your household. Now, that's an interesting phrase in the original language. It literally says, come in, (laughs) come into the ark. But here's what's so phenomenal about it, all right? It is an invitation embedded in an imperative, meaning he's saying to Noah, I command you to come in. I'm inviting you to come in, but I'm doing so by command. Well, why is that important for us today? Well, look with me there in your notes. The initiative of deliverance belongs to the Lord. Listen, none of this was Noah's idea. Noah wasn't sitting around one day thinking, you know what, I think I need to build a boat. No, God initiated that. Noah wasn't thinking, you know what, I probably need to get in this boat. No, God said, Noah, now I want you to come in. Come in, Noah, and be delivered. Come in and be rescued. The second thing I want you to see from verse 1 is God describes Noah as righteous. Look what he says there. For I've seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. The word righteous there is an adjective, and it's an It's a word that's describing a person who is in a right relationship with God. A person who is in a right relationship with God. In chapter 6 and verse 9, we read last week, we studied it. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. Now, what, what did we kind of pull out of that text? Here it is. Noah deliberately and intentionally pursued the Lord. He deliberately and he intentionally followed the Lord and the things of the Lord. Remember, we made this statement last week. Godliness and righteousness and holiness doesn't happen by accident in anyone's life. It it, it didn't happen by accident in Noah's life. And if it's true of me and you, it won't happen by accident. If any of us are going to walk with the Lord... It is going to be the result of a, of a deliberate commitment on our part to seek him, obey him, and follow him. It's not going to just happen. And we see that language in all of Scripture. Let me just remind you of some of this we see in the New Testament. In Luke 9, Jesus says, If anyone wants to come after me, let him what deny himself. We see in other parts of Scripture, we are to die to self. We're to seek the things that are above. We're to crucify the flesh. We're to live worthy of the gospel of Christ. We're to walk by the Spirit. We're to run our race with endurance. We're to renew our mind. Paul says to Timothy, train yourself in godliness. In other words, if you and I are going to walk with the Lord... It takes a deliberate commitment on our part. Look with me here in your notes. Here's what I want you to take away. Righteousness is the result of an intentional endeavor on our part to know God, obey God, and follow Him. Righteousness is the result of an intentional endeavor on our part to know God, obey God, and follow Him. The third thing I want you to see from uh, the life of Noah here in chapter 7 is Noah did everything the Lord commanded. Look in verse 5. And Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. In verse 9, just as God had commanded him. And in verse 16, just as God had commanded him. In chapter 6, verse 22, we read, he did everything that God had commanded him. Why is that important for us today? 
Obedience is the fruit of someone in a growing relationship with the Lord. Jesus said it this way in John 14 and verse 15. If you love me, look with me at this verse, you will keep or obey my commandments. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus got a little more specific. Look what he says here, beginning in verse 16. He says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then he says, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Noah's relationship with the Lord was evident from the fruit his life produced. Now, please don't misunderstand what Jesus is teaching us here. You and I are not called to be fruit inspectors. This is something we're to do on an introspective level. You and I are to look at our own life. And we need to ask ourselves this question, what fruit is my life producing? Is it producing fruit consistent with one who knows the Lord, who's walking with the Lord? Look with me here in your notes. Here's what I want you to take away this morning. Obedience is the evidence of one who walks with God. Obedience is the evidence of one who walks with God with God. And then the fourth thing I want you to see here from verse 16 is this. God brought Noah into the ark, and God kept Noah safe in the ark. Look what we read here. Then the Lord shut him in. God shut Noah and his family in the ark. Listen, Noah couldn't have gotten out of the ark if Noah wanted to get out of the ark. Noah and his family, they weren't going anywhere until God opened the door for them. And we are reminded of this great truth that God brought Noah and his family in the ark, and guess what? He was going to keep them safe in the ark. And you and I can rejoice in that, and you're going to see why in just a moment. So look with me there in your notes. Here's the next thing I want you to see. The person rescued by God from his judgment will be kept safe and secure. Eight people entered that ark, and God kept all eight people safe and secure as he judged the world's sin and rebellion and wickedness. Now, if you'll remember when we finished last week, I made this statement that the ark is a type of Christ. The ark is, is not about a boat, and it's not about the animals that came on the boat. The ark is a foreshadowing of the, the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ. The ark is a work of redemption. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by redemption? God saving a people for himself from the penalty of our sin. That's what redemption is. God saving a people for himself from the penalty of our sin. The ark is a picture of redemption in the same way that the work of Christ is a work of redemption. And so the ark is not meant to educate us on, on this magnificent boat that was built, although that's all important. The ark is, is supposed to point us to redemption, okay? And let me just show you how the ark parallels 
the work of Christ. Are you ready? Look with me in your notes. Number one, Christ initiates the invitation to come to him. In the same way that God said, come, enter the ark, Noah. Christ initiates the invitation to come to him. Look with me at John 6 and verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus is speaking. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then we get a little further into this. Look with me at Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Listen to the language from Christ. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, why does he say you'll find rest for your souls? Because the burden and the weight of sin is magnificent. It is enormous. If you want to see that pictured in Scripture, just go to Psalm 32, Psalm 38, or Psalm 51. Go to all three of those, and you can see the burden. You can see the weight of sin in a person's life and how heavy and burdensome it is for you and I to carry. And Jesus says, listen, come to me and be relieved of that burden. Let me take that burden of sin and guilt and shame away from you. And he initiates that in us. Listen, it is a miracle. Number one, it is a miracle that any human being can be saved and redeemed. And that's why it's a work of the Lord. God does something in us in, in a way that only God can. He grabs hold of our heart and our mind. He convicts us of our sin and unrighteousness. And he shows us our need of Christ. And he brings us to himself. It's an amazing thing that God does in redemption. The second parallel I want you to see, Christ is the only way of salvation from eternal condemnation. He's the only way of salvation. In Acts 4 and verse 12, Peter, uneducated, no formal education Peter, who would be the, one of the great preachers of all time, finishes his message before the religious leaders of Israel, and he says this, referring to Christ. Acts 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is rescue, there is deliverance, there is redemption in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul says it this way, for I am not ashamed of the gospel... Because it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. And write this verse down. It's not in front of you. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, just, you, I'm going to continue to preach this because it's necessary in this pluralistic world that we live in. The road of salvation is very narrow, and it's very exclusive, and it runs only through the person of Jesus Christ, for there is no other way for any human being to be saved and redeemed outside of faith in Christ. Muhammad can't save you, and Buddha can't save you, and the Sikhs can't save you, and the Hindu gods can't save you. There is only one way. 
Just like there was only one way for Noah and his family to be saved from God's judgment in the flood, there's only one way for you and I to be saved today, and it's through Jesus Christ. Next, in Christ, we are declared righteous. Remember Noah? Remember what the word righteous means? It's an adjective describing a person who is in a right relationship with God. In Christ, we are declared righteous. Look with me at Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, watch this, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're made right before God through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, look closely with me. It says, he, referring to God, made the one, referring to Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so let me just read it this way. God made Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange in this phenomenal and mysterious and wonderful and awesome way. Are you ready for this? Through faith in Christ, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin and our filth and our ugliness. You know what he sees? He sees the righteousness of Christ. And in Christ, we've been declared righteous. We have a right relationship with the Father. Next, in Christ... We will be kept from God's wrath against sin. In the same way that Noah and his family were kept from God's wrath against sin, safely in the ark, you and I will be kept from God's wrath against sin. Look with me at John 3 and verse 36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, watch this, the wrath of God remains on him. So you and I could say that in the opposite, that the one who believes in the Son will be spared the wrath of God. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul encourages us, he says, Wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us, from the coming wrath. Remember, we looked at those passages of Scripture on the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I can say it this way. For God did not appoint us to endure his righteous anger against our sin, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Next. In Christ, we are kept eternally secure. In Christ, we are kept eternally secure. John 10, verses 27 through 29, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Let's go a little bit further in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Look what Paul writes. 
Paul is an aged man. He's, he's been following Christ for many, many years. He's been through incredible difficulties and persecutions and obstacles along the way. And look what he says. He says, I am persuaded or I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor any nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, in Christ we are kept eternally secure. In the same way you and I can't do anything to bring salvation to ourselves, you and I can't do anything to lose that in Christ. And then finally, Christ is inviting men and women to believe in him today. The invitation still stands, come, come. John 3, 16, for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 10 and verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. The ark is a picture of redemption. Why is it important to study it? Because it points us to the final redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the parallels are many, more than we've even looked at today. For some of you here today, Christ is inviting you to believe. He's inviting you to come in to the ark of salvation and find redemption. Some of you have heard the gospel message for many, many years. You're familiar with it. Some of you, maybe you've just recently heard it for the first time and you're still trying to grab hold of this. Either way, the Holy Spirit of God is, is grabbing hold of your heart and your mind. He's showing you your sin and your need of a Savior, and he's drawing you to himself. And my admonition to you would be this. Come in. <laughs> Say yes to that invitation. Walk into the presence of Christ and surrender in faith to him. Be saved. Be redeemed today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day that you've given us, Lord. Thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. Lord God, I thank you that you have made a way for us to be redeemed and rescued from your wrath against our sin and our rebellion and our wickedness and our ungodliness. And Lord God, your prophetic word is clear that uh, the day of your wrath is not far from us. All of the signs are there. And Lord God, I don't want any under the sound of my voice to perish. I, I don't want any to have to endure your wrath against their sin. So Lord God, I'm asking and I'm pleading and I'm begging if there is any individual in this room, Lord, who's never said yes to Jesus, who's never said yes to your invitation to be saved and redeemed, I'm asking, Lord, that today would be their day of salvation, that today they would say yes to Jesus. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I, I just I want you to hear my heart this morning. I'm not asking you to say yes to religion. 
I'm not asking you to say yes to spirituality. I'm not asking you to say yes to a denomination. I'm not asking you to say yes to a church. I am asking you to say yes to Jesus, to begin a personal walk with the Lord today. And it's amazingly simple. The Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so right where you are, I'm asking you today to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior, that he is God's one and only Son who died on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin, who rose from the dead guaranteeing eternal life to all who would believe. Would you say yes to Jesus today? Heavenly Father, thank you again for our time together. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to sing your praises and to study your word together. Lord, thank you for how you're moving and how you're working and what you are doing in each of our lives, individually and corporately. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in the life of this ministry. Continue to make yourself known, Lord. Continue to magnify, glorify, and exalt yourself in our presence today. For that is what we seek. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. I want to